This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears, and I'm joined as always by Federico Vitici. Hi, Fraser. How are you? Well, as I said to you before the show, Federico, I went to Berlin for an Apple event, and all I came back with was a lousy breathing problem from somebody who was sick on the plane, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to just try and get through the show a little bit. Uh, but if, if my voice fades out, I might have to have Suri fill in for me or something That's towards the end of the show. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's the worst. Yeah. Getting sick on planes is really, really bad. Uh, that's, well, uh, that's the airport uh, life, isn't it? So. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, a fun topic, uh, actually a fun series of topics for the next few yeah. episodes of Canvas. Um, over the past uh, three years, we've um, we've explored the evolution of the iPad as a platform, as a computing device, as an alternative to the Mac. Um, we've talked about the uh, the advantages of working on the iPad. We've taken a look at the various workflows that we employ, uh, the apps that we use, the automation that we use. Um, and we've also discussed all of the issues and shortcomings of the iPad as a platform, as a desktop computer, as a portable device. Um, and so I thought it's been three years, since the launch of the first iPad Pro, it'll be three years in November. Um, it came out in November 2015. And I thought we should do a mini-series, um, sort of to take stock of the past three years of iPad Pro and sort of reconsider and go back in history, take a look at what's changed in iOS, what's changed uh, in the iPad ecosystem, both for hardware and software and the cloud and automation, and sort of try to consider what may be coming next in the future as well as the uh, what we personally would like to see come to the iPad over the next few years. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. So I thought before we talked about we talk about anything else there's an apple event coming there's rumors of new ipad yeah. pros launching so i thought the very obvious first step would be to talk about software uh because major update to ios just launched and while it's possible that new ipad pros may come with major new software features as we'll talk about in a moment for example with the pencil came out in the first iPad Pro uh, pencil support was not available in iOS uh, in iOS uh, 9 at WWDC but it was introduced um, with the iPad Pro event in September so while it's possible to have some software changes it feels safer to talk about the overall picture of iOS software right after a major update uh, launched uh, last month. So before we talk about what we would like to see in the future of iPad software, let's take a look at what's changed over the past three years. So as I mentioned, in 2015, uh, first iPad Pro came out, and the iOS version that year was iOS 9. And iOS 9 was a major iPad release. Um, it was the first software update that added uh, support for actual multitasking on the iPad. So split view and slide over and picture in picture were added with iOS 9. And this was a major departure from what the iPad software used to be. And it was a major departure from Apple's um, sort of principle that the iPad was whatever app you were using. Now Apple was saying, yeah. we have screens big enough that you can actually use two apps at the same time, maybe even three, if you consider picture-in-picture. Picture. And this, of course, was before the time when you could use 
two apps in I think two apps in split view and another app in slide over because again the iPad Pro only launched uh, in November so when Apple introduced this feature in 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 June and released iOS 9 on the iPad Air 2 in September um, you could only do either split view or uh, split view and, sl- and slide over but it was not like uh, three active apps at the same time um, also iOS 9 introduced um, pencil integration uh, with the with the first iPad Pro so a whole new series of touch apis for developers uh, with displays that could scan for touches at a higher rate than previous iPads um, but also it was the it marked iOS 9 marked the debut of uh, proper uh, integration with external keyboards. Um, of course, Apple released their own smart keyboard with the first iPad Pro, but the underlying functionality of being able for being able to hold down on the command key to see a list of available keyboard shortcuts and for developers to to offer multiple keyboard shortcuts in their apps was new in iOS 9, which meant mm-hmm. that even if you use a Bluetooth keyboard instead of Apple's smart keyboard, you could take, take advantage of these features. And overall, I think, uh, looking back at iOS 9, I feel like that should be considered, that release should be considered uh, a major milestone for the iPad's history. Yeah, that was kind of like a year zero for the iPad, wasn't it? It was, it was a major reset. And I think they also, Federico, the thing that's interesting about the smart keyboard is that, you remember when the first iPad came out, Apple had a keyboard dock that you could put in. Yes, it was literally just I had one of those. With, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that was an interesting device because it was a dock connector device and the iPad was portrait in that thing. And it was also very clearly like that thing would stay on your desk and you would drop the iPad in when you came home and you would do something with it. But it wasn't really envisaged, I don't think, that you would take the keyboard with you because um, it wasn't really a portable or a compact thing. Uh, whereas the smart keyboard was the first kind of what you might call sort of semi-permanently attached keyboard, hardware keyboard to an iPad. Um, and I suppose also, and they've not really changed, fully changed the iPad to take account of this, but the iPad became a, a landscape device at that point, I think, at least the iPad Pro is very mm-hmm. much, I don't know about your iPad Pro, but certainly mine spends its whole life in landscape and very rarely in portrait these days. Um, so that was, um, I suppose that was a major change in the way that the iPad was handled in iOS. And I think that um, that was really when the iPad Pro became the iPad Pro, because if you had taken iOS 8 and put it on iPad Pro hardware, you would sort of be like, well, why is this being called Pro, you know, but with all these multitasking features and the keyboard and the pencil, um, it becomes a whole other set of things. Yeah, and the point about the iPad Pro uh, becoming an, becoming a landscape device is especially true if you consider that the first iPad Pro was only available in the 12.9-inch size because the 10.5 version was only released last year, in 2017. Mm-hmm. So the iPad Pro, for almost two years, was only available in the in the 12.9-inch uh, form factor. Um, yeah, well, remember the, you had the 9.7-inch iPad in 2016. There was a 9.7 iPad Pro. Oh, that's right. As well. Do you remember? I always I know, forget we about got that. In school. Yeah. I that's always forget about that school. iPad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's the only iPad machine. Pro I never yeah. got. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it had it had the four speakers and it had um, it's got the smart keyboard and it supported the pencil straight away. So um, we've we've had quite a good run with that in school, mm-hmm. uh, and it's worked it's worked pretty well. And um, we're about to you know change them over next year, so we'll see what we get after that. But yeah. it's interesting that some of those features that were 
iPad Pro features back then are now on 9.7 inch, you know, sixth generation iPads already. So like the pencil support, for example, has come down the line. But yeah, I mean, the fact that the smart connector and the smart keyboard only supported one orientation in landscape, yeah. I think it was pretty much telling uh, what Apple's strategy with this device was going to be, that it's mm-hmm. meant to be a computer replacement if you want to use it at a desk, and they thought that landscape orientation was going to be the best option for this. Um, yeah. So we moving on to 2016, we have iOS 10, which is a relatively minor update, and it sort of sets the trend for the iPad in recent years of... Mm-hmm. Um, the iPad is, evolves in cycles. There's um, an, uh, one year that Apple releases um, a major hardware upgrade, and the next year uh, you don't get anything and then the next year you get more attention to the iPad. So it's sort mm-hmm. of establishing this rhythm of expecting major iPad updates uh, every two years instead of every year like the iPhone. Uh, iOS 10 didn't have much for the iPad. In fact, I think the only feature was um, Safari split view. So the ability mm-hmm. to open two web pages in the same instance of Safari on the iPad. This feature is still exclusive to Safari. There's no native API for developers to take advantage of the same system that Safari uses to open two views simultaneously at the same time. They can build their own, but they're usually not as smooth or as performant as Apple's take. And there's a rumor that this is one of the features that Apple that Apple wants to bring to the iPad the next year with iOS 13. So it wouldn't be surprising if next year we're going to see a bunch of apps take advantage of this functionality, uh, which would bring some kind of windowing to the windowing system to the iPad. Maybe uh, we'll talk about yeah. this in uh, when we talk about our wishes for the iPad software. Um, I don't think there's anything else about iOS 10. Uh, Literally nothing. I, mean, yeah. I, I searched so, Wikipedia for all these releases for the word iPad, and that was the only thing that came up in the whole page of iOS 10. So moving on to iOS 11, again, we reach another major year for the iPad platform because as we've talked about (laughs) plenty of times on Canvas, uh, iOS 11 uh, rethought the entire iPad multitasking environment. So uh, we, the Apple left the old split view app picker behind, replacing Mm -hmm. it with a dock and uh, spaces and a whole new paradigm for um, switching between apps in a multitasking context. Uh, Again, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but basically Apple kept parts of the old system, namely the idea of using two apps at the same time in split view and adding a third one in slide over and watching videos with picture in picture, but basically everything has changed with the addition of the dock and drag and drop and spaces and fixed pairs of apps. Mm -hmm. also, there's a which, new f- which is essentially which is essentially a Mac concept, really, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. The, the idea of having workspaces where you've got pairs of windows together, but on iOS, it's got to be pairs of apps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
there's also the new Files app, uh, which is sort of uh, sort of Apple's take on a mobile finder, um, but it also builds upon the existing iCloud Drive system and the idea of you can manage your documents uh, using iCloud Drive, but also you can integrate with these uh, third-party service providers so that in the same app you can also switch between iCloud Drive and Dropbox or Google Drive or documents from DevonThink, for example. So um, mm-hmm. files becoming more of an integrated um, layer of file management uh, across the entire iOS, um, which I think is, is an interesting idea, and I use it a bunch, but it definitely needs a lot of improvements, as we'll talk Federico, about. Federico, w- would you say that even today, like, does your workflow, like when you sit, sit down at an iPad to do some work, do you go to files first, or do you still go to the app first? No, I don't. Uh, I still go to the app first, but I think that I tend to use fewer document-based apps than I used to because I use Mm -hmm. files a lot. Like, I use iCloud Drive a lot, and I use Dropbox a lot, but but I typically access Dropbox via files. And I think, I especially like the fact that the that the document picker is more integrated everywhere and that apps can provide, can offer like a storage mm-hmm. location inside files. Um, I definitely use uh, files more than I used to use iCloud Drive back when iCloud Drive was its own app in, in iOS 9. Yeah. So my yeah. usage of, of of the file management utility for iOS has increased, but I mm-hmm. still don't it I don't use it like I would like I use the Finder on a Mac. Uh, so yeah. when I open my yeah. Mac, I open the Finder and I open Documents. When I when I open my iPad, I open the app, and then maybe I also go to Files. Um, so I wouldn't say that it that it sort of changed my workflow. Yeah, but I still use the app more than I used to uh, than I used to use uh, iCloud Drive. But you'd say it's kind of become the hub of your your file management yes. workflow, if you like. You know, so you're not hitting the Dropbox app and the Google Drive app and all these yeah. different things. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's how I see a lot of people using it nowadays. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, iOS 12, which uh, launched last month. Uh, again, another off year for the iPad. Again, assuming that the new iPad Pros, if there's if there if there is a new iPad Pro uh, coming next week, um, assuming that those devices do not provide do not come out with exclusive and major software breakthroughs uh, in terms of what is possible with iOS with iOS on an iPad, um, the iOS twelve we have so far is not an iPad release. It's more like iOS 10. It's more focused on consumer features, uh, like, for example, FaceTime and changes in messages and the camera and photos. It's got some uh, interesting Siri features, like uh, Siri Shortcuts, for example. It's got the Shortcuts app, but it's not an iPad release. It doesn't, it doesn't rethink iPad multitasking. That said, the rumors are saying that it's possible that these iPad Pros may introduce USB-C support. Uh, so maybe there's potential for external storage uh, access on iOS. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's rumors of these iPads supporting 4K output, 
to an external display. So uh, we should see whether it becomes possible to use an iPad Pro with an external display and what that means for the mm-hmm. iOS interface, what happens there. But so far, the iOS 12 we know so far that we've been testing since June is not an iPad release. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So in, in terms of our, our kind of relationship with iPad and iPad software over the past couple of years, I think it's probably worth just reflecting, Federico, on how, you know, since 2015, since we saw that first iPad Pro come out, how has that kind of changed our lives mm. and the way that we we approach computers and computing and all that kind of stuff? Sure. Mm. Why don't you yeah. Why don't you go first? Because I know that you've had a sure. bit of a <laughs> bit of a f- few changes occurring uh, throughout the past three yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, I I when I first saw the iPad Pro, I remember being invited to a a, a pre launch event in London to have a look at the iPad Pro, and I was I was just completely blown away by it because the combination of what had come in iOS 9 very, a little bit earlier and then seeing this much larger screen, this keyboard I mean, and we have to sort of acknowledge what the world was like before the Apple Pencil, you know the Apple Pencil was a revelation in terms of, of its accuracy and precision and its feel and all these things and we have our complaints about the Pencil now in terms of battery and so on but it's still miles better than anything that came before it Um and I, I ended up going all in on iPad Pro. I mean, like I sold my laptop, didn't have a desktop computer at home, literally just had a bare desk with an iPad Pro on it. And for about a year and a half from December 2015, all of 2016, most of 2017, um, I pretty much used that iPad Pro as my only computer. And for a long time, that was really, really successful for me because things had happened like um, iWork had gotten much more powerful and more compatible between Mac and iOS. Uh, Microsoft Office had appeared during that time as well. I mean, that was another thing that kind of happened around that time was that uh, Microsoft Office got on the iPad as well. And lots of things were getting better quickly. But for me, um, iOS 11 was where I started to sort of break down with the iPad. And we've certainly talked about that in, in previous episodes as well. But I just found that the the new multitasking UI just very obstructive and you know during the beta cycle of ios 11 and and into ios 12 as well it, it i could just never quite get happy with it you know um it just seemed slower and much less fluid and flexible i mean objectively speaking ios 11 is more flexible than ios 10 was but i just felt that i worked i was able to work faster with ios 10 and i still feel even today that i haven't quite got to grips with ios 11 so but at the same time, the other thing that happened to me in that period was that my work changed as well. And I had mm. to take on a lot more management responsibilities in school. And I ended up just spending more and more and more time in G Suite doing big documents, big collaborations with lots of people and, and big school-wide projects. And and the iPad, the, the iPad access to G Suite at that point started to become a bit of an obstruction for me in terms of the scale of things I was doing. You know, instead of working with one spreadsheet in Google Sheets. I was working with, you know, 25 different documents. You know, okay. I think, and things like that became, it's just like, I'm just not working as fast as I need to work now because 
you know, we're looking at one document at a time on iPad and I need to have you know, a bigger screen. I need to have lots of tabs open, all that kind of stuff. And just the scale of my work increased in a way that the iPad didn't quite keep pace with at that point. Um, so that was kind of where I started to revert back to using the Mac a bit more often to the point now where I would say that the balance of my usage has kind of changed a little bit to the point where I'm probably more Mac than iPad now. And it's mostly for that particular reason that the scale of my work changed over that period as well. So would you say that if your kind of work hadn't changed, um, you would have probably liked iOS 11 more? Or do you think that your opinion of iOS 11 is, um, uh, is independent from the kind of work changes that occurred in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I, I think... I understand exactly what you're going to ask there. I think the I still don't like iOS 11, right? Okay. And, and I think that... I still think that some of the... Some of the user interface decisions that were made in iOS 11 were, they were sort of half-baked Mac ideas that came on onto the iPad and didn't quite work in, without going the whole step to doing like windowing on iOS, for example. Um, but that that alone wouldn't have been enough to kind of push me off daily iPad use. It was really the the scale of the work problem that pushed me off the iPad. I thought, I really need to just be more productive than I can be with this platform. And also, to some extent, the fact that the Google Docs apps on iOS are still not power as powerful as using Google Docs on the web, for example. But um, the iOS 11 thing was annoying, but it wasn't that wasn't enough to make me say, oh, to hell with the iPad, let's get rid of this. It wasn't that. It was obstructive, but I sort of got used to it a little bit but it was more the kind of new tasks that I was having to take on. I just couldn't quite get it all together mm-hmm. on the iPad in that same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so to quickly recap my um, my iPad story, um, it goes a long way back. Uh, before the iPad Pro, I, I, I can say that I switched to the iPad as my primary computer uh, somewhere in between the 2013 and 2014. Uh, as I as I mentioned before, I started using the iPad when I was uh, uh, undergoing treatments um, at a hospital and I couldn't use a MacBook and the iPad at the time was the iPad Mini 2, maybe. Um it, allowed, it was the only device that allowed me to get work done uh, from a hospital bed. And after that experience, I sort of I, I kept using the iPad because I fell in love with the ecosystem and with the idea of this is a computer that I can take with me anywhere. And it's got a cellular, cellular compatibility so I can have internet access everywhere. I can use an external keyboard with it. Um, so I kept using the iPad. I eventually switched to the iPad Air and the iPad Air 2. And when the first iPad Pro came out, it was sort of a confirmation of the work that I had put uh, into the into understanding and the, and uh, discovering the potential of the iPad platform for the past couple of years. And so when the first iPad Pro came out, I just I I went all in with the iPad as my everyday computer and the basically the only thing that I do on a Mac these days is recording podcasts uh, because one of the shortcomings of the iPad software platform is that I cannot connect uh, a USB interface and my microphone and create separate audio tracks for a Skype call and my local audio recording. Uh, but aside, uh, b- besides podcast recording, uh, everything I do, I do on iPad. And so I 
I used the I I used the 12.9 inch iPad Pro f- until the 10.5 version came out. Then I switched in 2017, so last year I switched to a dual iPad setup. Uh, our friend Mike Hurley would call it the multi-pad lifestyle. Uh, I use a 12.9 inch iPad Pro as my work iPad and the 10.5 as my um, more portable iPad. So it's the iPad that I can carry around the house, that I can use to read uh, articles at night in bed or watch videos or play games. Um, I I actually liked what Apple did in iOS 11. I'm a big fan of drag and drop. Um, in fact, I, I would love Apple to even explore more drag and drop features uh, in iOS, like, uh, I don't know, like a shelf, <laughs> like a clipboard, mm. uh, something to, to hold bits of content that you save with drag and drop. But I, I would say that Overall, I've only gotten deeper in the iPad ecosystem over the past two years. And of course, it kind of helps that my job is always the same. And I think the iPad Mm. lends itself particularly well to someone who needs to write and read and talk to people and browse the internet and do research. That type of work, I think an iPad is just ideal for me. Yeah, I think one of the, the strengths of the iPad for such a long time has been writing. You know, I think it's... We do a lot of that in school, you know, kids are always, you know, using pages to make documents and, and keynote to make presentations and so on. But just that the multitasking combination of the web plus something else is so powerful on iPad. And, and you know, I, I couldn't see us, for example, in school changing away for that from, from that kind of task tool set if you like for what the kids do in school um i spend most of my time in google sheets now which is such a weird you know it's never how i thought my life was going to be either with the spreadsheets or with the google but that's the way it seems to have worked out which is uh interesting by itself Hmm. um so we have lots more to talk about today Mm -hmm. uh but before we do that why don't we thank our friends at pingdom Absolutely. The Pingdom are the company who make website performance monitoring really easy. Everyone loves a fast website and Pingdom are helping keep your favorite sites online. These are sites like Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack, just a few of the companies that trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Because websites can get pretty complicated, but you can monitor any site transaction with Pingdom, stuff like user registrations, logins, checkouts, and much more. Pingdom care about your users having the smoothest site experience possible, and if disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know. It's super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is your URL, and they'll take care of the rest. That is it. So go to pingdom.com slash reallyfm right now for a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so now we get to the good stuff. Um, what should Apple do next? And, yeah, this is a bit we like. Uh, yes. Fraser, I'll let you go first <laughs> because I can imagine that you want to talk about web browsers. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is weird, right? You know, we thought that... I, I don't know if you thought this, Federico, but I sort of thought this, that the web would eventually sort of... Not, not die, right? The web's never going to die, right? It's, it's too... It's too widespread for that, but I, I thought that there would come a time when the web was much less important because apps would be really important. And I suppose to a certain extent that's happened. I mean, you look at, you go to a lot of websites and you and you see adverts for you to download the equivalent app to what is on the website. But 
if you remember back to the days of the Mac, right? I think one of the things that saved the Mac was the fact that the web came along. You know, in the days of the iMac, you know, the iMac was the internet Mac. And the fact that an iMac was as compatible with going on the internet as any other computer made it completely feasible to buy a Mac when the web became the thing that people wanted to do. And I think that uh, being less than fully compatible with capable web apps, and I, and I use web apps deliberately rather than websites, uh, remains a kind of a risk for iPad today. And this is a thesis that I've been working on for a while, and my, my pal Bradley Chambers and I, when we had the Out of School podcast, this was something that we identified as a problem for Apple, particularly in education where we work, which is that in education, um, the back end is dominated by either Office 365 or G Suite. And schools are either one or they're the other. And there's really, you know, nobody's running their school on iCloud, for example. Mm. Um, and what I, th- I believe is that the iPad being, in education specifically, but this might become a broader thing as more businesses adopt G Suite as well. Do you remember back in the days when, when Apple was changing to OS ten, and the big risk for OS ten was that Microsoft and Adobe wouldn't port Office and Photoshop to Mac OS ten. And if those two apps didn't come along, then the Mac would be in the future Mac running OS ten would be irrelevant and Apple would be finished. Um, now Apple's not in that same situation today because the iPhone is such a powerhouse, but the iPad as a product line, at least in certain segments, I think has a bit of a risk in that if you're not completely compatible, powerfully compatible with G Suite, you've got a problem in education now. And if you're not fully compatible with Office 365, you've got a problem in education now. And I think on the basis of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Office 365 story on iPad is actually better than the, the story for G Suite. And I think it seems clear to me over the past couple of years that Google realizes the power that it has over the iPad in the sense that Google owns the school in the sense that the data and the identity and the workflow are all built around G Suite. And then the iPad, as long as the iPad can do enough, then it's viable in schools. But as soon as the iPad can't do all the sophisticated G Suite stuff that schools might want to do, G Suite will be the thing that remains and the iPad will have to go and Chromebook will have to come in. And I think this is a bit of a risk for Apple. And what they really need, I think, is they need to have that kind of web lifeboat again the way they did back in the mac days where whether or not google update their ipad apps to be compatible with the latest features in g suite and so on apple can always fall back on well we've got a full desktop browser on the ipad as well so just use that and it'll be the same as using chrome on your mac for example it's never been that way and i don't know when i bring this topic up People always say, well, is that Apple's fault or is that Google's fault? Is it Apple's fault because there's something missing in Safari that means Google can't support full G Suite on iOS? Or is is Safari capable of doing it, but Google just refuses to do it Mm. for competitive reasons? And and I don't know the answer to that. It, It might be that Apple has done everything they need to do and Google are just being that way. It's possible. But it may not be Apple's fault. 
but it is Apple's problem. And I think there's something that needs to happen here to make it so that um, whatever web-based tool people need to use, it's as compatible on the iPad as it would be on a Mac or a Chromebook or indeed these Chrome OS tablets that are mm. coming along because often people have said, well, you can't do desktop web on a touchscreen device. Right. But desktop web is being done on touchscreen devices all the time now. You look at these touchscreen laptops from Microsoft and um, a lot of touchscreen Chromebooks are out there, Windows machines, and even these Chrome OS tablets. You know, it, it works. So I think Apple needs to deliver a much more much more complete web experience. I mean, I had that, that uh, Acer Chromebook Tab 10 and it was like, it wasn't a great machine, but you could do like Chrome developer tools on that tiny little tablet. Whereas this iPad Pro, which is much better built, much faster, much more capable in every possible way, is still stuck with this dinky web browser that can hardly do anything. And I think that is, to me, that is the major aspect of iOS that is significantly weaker than even much worse computers nowadays. And I think it's something that is very non-pro compared to almost everything else. I mean, I'm using, I'm using Ferret Recording Studio right now. What a powerful app, you know, even Microsoft Office is great, Keynote, they're all really powerful apps. But Safari is one thing which is really not as powerful as, as it could be. And I think that's something that should really be fixed quite soon. Do you feel like a potential solution for Apple would be to, um, to modify Safari on iOS and iPad in a way that when it is connected to, I don't know, a new smart keyboard with a trackpad, it could sort of transform itself into desktop Safari? Could that be a potential a potential solution? Um, yeah, possibly, possibly. I mean, a number of a number of these kind of um, uh, network computing applications, like screens, for example, they have a kind of trackpad mode that you can do on the screen where there's like a little area mm -hmm. yeah. on the actual display where you can use it like a trackpad, and that remotely controls the cursor that moves around. And even even if Safari had a way to just have a kind of emulation mode for a desktop computer so you can say well desktop if you say you know use desktop mode as which is already existing in mobile safari using desktop mode would actually mean well basically it transforms into you're using a a, a full browser you've got a trackpad a virtual cursor appears right we may have to cross that line at some point um and it just becomes to the web the website as if you're using safari on a mac let's see and mm -hmm. it, it should be as compatible as that. right Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, expanding the uh, support for requesting a desktop site, which is already a feature, but it doesn't work all the time. Sometimes it works, yeah. uh, it works other times it doesn't. I think it would be it would be great to have, for example, first of all, the option to, uh, the ability to always make it work, so to have it be consistent, and also yeah. a way to say, look, I always want to load uh, docs.google.com in desktop mode. I never want to see the mobile version. So a way for users, for pro users, to say, always load this website on my iPad yeah. in desktop mode. But then again, I could see a scenario where Apple sort of treats uh, Safari differently, whether you're using it via touch or via... A keyboard with a trackpad, which, which I think is ine yeah. inevitable, as, uh, you know, at this point. Um, and I could see sort of Safari saying, if you're using touch, I'm going to request by default the mobile version. If you're using this keyboard with a trackpad, um, I'm going to request a desktop version. But also I could yeah. see a virtual trackpad mode for compatibility purposes. I feel like once Apple started doing 
things like custom keyboards or you know the shortcuts app i feel like mm-hmm. anything is possible at this point the the company can can do anything if they put their mind to it if they really want to they can do anything on ios at this point so i agree with you that something needs to happen eventually because the 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 line of thought that i really like what you said that it may not be apple's apple's fault but it is apple's problem that is a hundred percent true yeah uh, yeah so we mentioned quickly files uh and again i I use it more than than i used to use icloud drive but there's still a bunch of things that i you know i i look at the finder on macOS, and especially the the finder changes in macOS mojave and i look at files in ios 12 and i you know and it, it makes me wish for um more feature consistency between the two um especially because on a device that is called the ipad pro i'm surprised that for example you still use you're still limited to two views so you can either use icon view or you can use uh, list view all the other options that are available on the mac are not available at all on ios and especially column view which is my favorite uh, for the finder um and it's something that would really take advantage of the ipad pro's big screen uh not available in files but also things like quick actions that are new in mojave those I feel like those will be perfect ex- extension points for developers on iOS. So the idea of selecting a file in the Files app and being able to modify that file or do something with it uh, with a quick action that doesn't require to go through the share sheet or you know to have these complex interactions that require multiple taps. Uh, I would love to see something like that. But also yeah. basic stuff like make the API for developers more reliable so so many times i switch between uh, document providers like dropbox or devon think or keep it and i see this message that says content unavailable uh because of some mm. performance or memory consum- consumption problems with the api uh, and also things like let me decide let me choose which files should always be cached offline when I'm using iCloud Drive and which ones you can intelligently remove and then cache again when I need to access those. So the ability to say these files, these PDF invoices in this folder never remove the downloaded version. Always keep it offline. And iCloud Drive just doesn't work that way right now because it decides what you need when you tap the download icon. But even if you download something, at some point, the the downloaded version may be removed. So um, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that should be be more user, more um, defined by the user. Like I want to to be able to fully control the files experience and the iCloud experience in a way that I can be sure that when I'm on a plane, my PDF invoices or my image, image assets for automation will always be cached offline. Yeah, yeah. I, I think with files, what, there's a couple of problems. Remember, there was a whole debate about um, open versus what was it, open versus export or something like that. Yeah, there yeah, was a, there was yeah. two different modes that the API could work in, and then uh, files also tries to abstract the difference between there's a resource on a cloud service somewhere that you could potentially download and open versus there's an actual file on the local storage on your iPad and files doesn't really give you that clear 
a distinction between those two things. And I don't know whether there's just a bit too much abstraction going on with the app and the API. Whereas if we were just sort of clear, well, here's the stuff that's on my iPad and then there's a cloud over here and that's all cloud stuff. And we could sort of trade one off against the other in some way. Um, I'm not being very clear in what I mean by that, but it just tries to show you, here's all your files and don't worry about where they are. But the reality of networks is that we do have to worry about where they are because sometimes things will get ejected and you've got no network and so on and so on and so on. So maybe just sort of bringing a little more of the details to the surface and letting us control them might be the best thing to move files forward a little bit. What do you think of the idea that I, I think it's a it's a discussion that we see uh, pop up on Twitter and on tech blogs every few months uh, of the idea of making iPad apps truly desktop class. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I think the the question is, what do we mean by desktop class? You know, that's for some people when they say that, what they mean is they want they want branded desktop applications on the iPad, right? So witness this whole recent thing about Photoshop coming to the iPad, which I think is great and I'm delighted about it. Although I'm not a Photoshop user, so it won't change my life very much, but it's great to see uh, in a way I can evoke a confidence. So here's Photoshop and Photoshop's on the iPad. But the thing for me, the thing I've always meant by desktop class is not just, is this Microsoft, an app from the desktop now on the iPad, but does it have all the features, right? So even though we've got Microsoft Word on the iPad now and we've got Excel on the iPad now, we don't have the same Excel that we have on the Mac. Right. We don't have the same Word that we have on the Mac. And there's a lot of things that you might want to do. Um, I mean, I used to teach a, a class in school where we were, we were, it was part of the kind of ICT class where you were given tasks um, set by people other than me and you would have to do stuff essentially with Microsoft Office. Um, and what I had to do very carefully was look at all the tasks that I may be given and say, can I do those tasks on the iPad version of Word? Because the tasks were written with the desktop Windows version of Word in mind. And there were things like make a table and rotate the headings in the table 90 degrees, right? Something like that, which is a one button operation in Word on the Mac or on Windows. And for the first like two years of, office on the Mac or office on the iPad that wasn't supported, right? So just that one feature yeah. Yeah. not being there meant that that wasn't really a desktop class version of, of Microsoft Word, you see? And, and I think that's something, it's not, it's not just the opening the file format in full fidelity was really great and that's a major and important step, but having the breadth of features and the depth of features that you have on desktop computers that's something that the iPad needs to get. And whether it's an economics problem, people can't afford to bring all the features or they don't want to bring legacy features to the iPad, that's a, a debate to be had. Mm. But for me, it's not just about having the file format there, but it's about having all the other things that go around it as well. You know, yeah. and an example from Google Sheets is like scripting. You know, we have a whole system in school that is now based on um, Google Apps scripts. And I can't run that on the iPad because the iPad version doesn't support running scripts. So stuff like that is sort of what I'm talking about when I talk about desktop class applications for the iPad. Yeah, and sometimes that even happens with Apple's own apps. I remember last year I needed to put together this presentation for uh, for a conference where I was a speaker, and yeah. I remember that I couldn't change the font size 
of presenter notes in Keynote on iOS or something like that. I needed to do that yeah. on, on, on my Mac. And I think I saw in, the, in, a, in a recent Keynote update on iOS that the feature was finally added. But that was something yeah, that's that I possible needed. Now. Yeah. I needed to Google this, this problem and I needed to find the, you know, the solution was just use a Mac because the iOS version of Keynote, which is made by Apple, which makes both... Mm-hmm the Mac and the iPad Pro uh, is not available on iOS. So I can yeah. definitely, I, I, I'm on, I think uh, I have the same sort of approach to this. It doesn't, desktop class doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be the, it needs to be the exact same app. It doesn't need to mimic the UI of the desktop version, even though Agreed. I think we're going to see a bunch of a bunch of these apps in the next few years of sort of mm-hmm. adapting desktop UIs to touch. Um, but it's more, I think for me, it's more of a problem of even though it's different and even though the UI is optimized for iOS and is optimized for touch, can you accomplish the same functionalities? Can you can you do the same things even in a different way? And that is sort of for me what defines desktop class. It's sort of the idea of I can accomplish the same task in two in two places with different methods, with different interactions, but the same tasks can be done. Um, and your point about, I think, your point about is it worth is it worth the effort from an economic point of view? I think this is exactly why. Uh, the idea of bringing desktop class software to the iPad is closely tied to the idea of software is moving to a subscription model. Uh, and I think Absolutely. we're going to see yeah. a lot of these over the next few years. Uh, since Apple opened up subscriptions for all kinds of apps two years ago, we've seen more and more developers adopt this business model. Some apps do not necessarily make sense as subscriptions, uh, but others certainly do. And I think with Photoshop, uh, it's a perfect example of a single company making a suite of apps for multiple platforms, but those apps are based on a single Photoshop subscription, so a single Creative Cloud account. So the idea of you justify the cost by letting people give you money on a on a regular basis. I think we're going to see a lot of these uh, this sort of a lot of similar approaches as more companies attempt the bringing desktop class um, strategy. Uh, you know, software to iPad in, yeah. in the next couple of years. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, and I know a lot of people don't like subscription apps, but this is not going away. You know, because. If you think about all the iPad apps that are getting like major engineering put into them, almost all of them are based on subscription, right? So you've got Ulysses, yeah. Todoist, you know, Microsoft Office, the Adobe Suite, you know, and to a certain extent, Apple's software is subscription in the sense that you pay for iCloud and you you sort of subscribe to it by keeping on buying new iOS devices as well. Um, all of that is that's ensuring that these companies have like consistent revenue so that they can consistently work on these new versions of the apps without having to and it also benefits you because they don't have to artificially keep features back to make you upgrade i mean that was always the adobe problem was how did they put enough stuff into photoshop 9 to get you to pay another 600 pounds or whatever it was for a license for photoshop and all of that problem goes away and features can be delivered when they're ready not when the marketing team requires them to be delivered so they can get you to pay for an upgrade um and i think it's it's working well and i don't see people um charging ruinous amounts of money for these subscriptions you know i think 
20 to 30 pounds a year seems to be what most sort of independent apps are going for you know Ulysses uh, Todoist are kind of in that price range um, smaller apps a little bit less and you know suites like Adobe Creative Cloud obviously a little bit more as well um, I think that's that's actually starting to work really well again like you said not everybody makes sense that way but increasingly you know one password as well as obviously subscription now as well uh, i think it's, it's starting to work really nicely and i think what is happening to a lot of people is they're maybe paying more for individual apps but they're probably using fewer apps as well so they demand that the apps do more for them and that's also plays into this question of is it a desktop class application because if i'm paying for a subscription for this app I, it can't be this app plus three other apps just to get that job done it all has to be inside that app because I'm paying for that one and that's the one I want to get the job done with. Um, and you look at an app like Ulysses, for example, it's very feature complete in the sense that you can kind of go, it's almost exactly the same as the Mac version. And that's a good example of something being a real desktop class application. I think one of the few things you can't do on the iOS version of Ulysses is edit themes. Um, but you can yeah. do almost everything else that you can do. So that, I think for me, that's kind of what we're talking about. And we're on the same page with that there, Federico. Yeah, totally. Um, and before we move on to the next uh, the next topic here, um, I also think the desktop class should apply to Apple itself. So if you look at the company yes. that makes both uh, the desktop OS and the iPad OS, um, you start to see all these differences, right? That really, they do not necessarily make sense unless you consider the iPad to be a lesser platform. But Apple mm-hmm. does not. They, they keep pushing the iPad as an alternative to the Mac. But if that's the case, then why are we lacking features such as, uh, I don't know, smart folders in files or the ability to create rules in Apple Mail, which hasn't been updated, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, in four years? In forever. Yeah, um, yeah. Same as reminders. Again, hasn't been updated, hasn't been made more powerful in years. Uh, why is it not possible to connect an external USB device and browse documents mm-hmm. contained on an external drive? You see all these differences uh, between working on an iPad and working on a Mac. And while there are workarounds, I don't think workarounds should be necessary. I think the more Apple can do to sort of... uh, There's an expression of eating their own dog food, but the idea of leading by example and sort of showing people how the same degree of productivity is available on macOS and on iOS, I think that should also be what defines desktop class going forward. Very much so. And my, my only major concern about, say, shortcuts is that shortcuts might become the standard answer to missing functionality in iOS as well. Oh, just write a shortcut for that, you know? Yeah, but and, there's only, much, in, in there's only so much Apple you can script, do. Yeah, yeah. But I, I hope they don't just sort of say, well, well, we'll put more features into shortcuts so people can script their own solutions to these problems mm. and we'll not bother putting features yeah. into mail, for example. Um, so fingers crossed on that. I'm not, I'm not saying that yeah, that's yeah. something I think is happening, but it, it could be seen as the kind of release valve for a lot of these you know, missed features and missing features in first-party apps as well. Yep, yep. Okay, Federico, we got a new sponsor for the show. Oh, exciting. Uh, this episode of Canvas is brought to you by our new friends at Luna Display. Uh, now, Federico, let me tell you about this because it's really cool. Uh, Luna Display is the only hardware solution that turns your iPad into a wireless display for your Mac. So you have this super portable second display with stunning image quality and basically zero lag. 
And setting up Luna Display is so simple. You just plug this little piece of hardware into your Mac and you're up and running in seconds. Everything works over Wi-Fi. And if you don't have access to a Wi-Fi connection, you can actually connect via USB as well. It's super simple because basically what it does is the Luna Display acts like an extension to your Mac. It supports an external keyboard, the Apple Pencil. Basically what you see is, is you see your Mac display on the iPad but then you can interact with it the way you'd interact with an iPad. So you've got, you can pinch to zoom, tap to click if you like, and you can also use the smart keyboard um, on the Mac apps, right? Does that sort of make sense, right? Imagine you've got a laptop and an iPad together and the iPad is running the Luna Display app and you can drag a window from your Mac screen and it appears on your iPad screen. It's quite weird when you first do it because uh, they sent one for me to try and I plugged it in and suddenly my iPad became a Mac and it was really weird. Um, but then it just sort of became quite a natural thing to do. So uh, I had my MacBook, I had my iPad and I was sort of working. I had calendar on one side and I was doing Google Docs stuff on my Mac on this side and it was it was really, really interesting and I found it to work um, uh just as expected, you know, when I started touching things over here and typing over here and, and it all just worked uh, really, really well. I was really impressed with it. Nice. So listeners of Canvas can get an exclusive 10% discount on Luna Display. Just go to Luna Display, it's L-U-N-A display.com and enter the promo code Canvas at checkout. Uh, our thanks to Luna Display for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Speaking of displays, <laughs> let mm. me let me ask you, um, what do you think of uh, sort of what many people think it's the next next big step potentially for the mm-hmm. iPad? The idea of using trackpads and external monitors with an iPad. What do you think um, the potential uh, advantages and problems could be there? Well, I think there's a kind of holy grail of computing that people want to get to, which is you've got this one thing that you can plug into lots yes. of other things and it becomes that other thing, yes. you know. And and I don't know if you remember, Apple used to have a thing called the PowerBook Duo, which was a, it was a laptop that had a kind of docking station like a video cassette recorder. And you could slide this laptop into this docking station and it would come up on a screen and an external keyboard and everything. And it was just your, your laptop's internal display on an external display and I kind of feel like we want to get back to PowerBook Duo but for an iPad or for a phone even um, I think what's instructive to me here Federico is uh, to think about that experience that I had using the Acer Chromebook Tab 10 because uh, if I can sort of explain to you what I mean by that there's a, a, a tricky balance to be struck with external displays on touchscreen computers which is that either you've got to have two touchscreens or you've got to have a pointer support, right? And I think the way the iPad does it at the moment is that there's no pointer on the iPad except in text uh, text areas, which means that any screen that you connect it to, like a TV or a projector, has to be a dumb mirror for the external display. So you can't interact with that screen at all by design, right? Mm-hmm. Now, apps are able to do specialized things with it. Think about Keynote. You've got your presenter display on the iPad screen, which you can certainly interact with. Uh, but then whatever's on the projector, you can't do anything with that. It's just a, a mirror for what's going on in your iPad. The Chromebook Tab, which is an interesting device because it is a touchscreen device that has optional pointing device support if you connect a mouse. When you're using multiple displays with that, say like you've got the Chromebook tab and a TV, 
you need to use a pointing device because the TV is a full peer of the internal display. You can drag a tab or a window from the internal display onto the external display. But the problem is if you don't have a mouse plugged in, you can't do anything with the window that's on the TV. Right. Right. So, so if you've got, if you've got a touchscreen computer, you have to sort of require that the other screen is a touchscreen as well, or you have to have a cursor. Yes. And, and so, so if Apple is going to do something with that, they have to go to the iPad has a cursor. So I think it's an interesting one. I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll I could see, I could yeah. see a keyboard with a trackpad, or I could see just mm-hmm. saying, uh, "Now you can connect a magic trackpad via Bluetooth to the iPad." Uh, but yeah. there's yeah. also a question of, um, you know, Apple made a big deal years ago of saying iOS is a UI designed for touch; uh, it's mm-hmm. not designed for a cursor. So you get into this this whole discussion of well is the ui uh can can the ui adapt to whether you're using touch um, input method or a cursor how do you do Mm -hmm. things like hover states for example so it's a whole discussion of sort of the api that you uh, expose to developers how do apps designed for touch uh, react to and scrolling via non-touch system it's possible that apple Mm -hmm. has figured out a way for ui kit for example to do this on its own so you don't have to care about anything you don't have to redesign anything i mean that would be ideal but also it would be a major departure from from previous years from from the very first ipad even yeah it definitely would i mean like Microsoft Office, for example, and Windows has two different modes that it can go into, two different UI modes, one for touchscreen and one for pointer, and you can just freely switch between them. Um, and we've done some stuff in school where we've used that version of Windows in emulation on the iPad through a virtual PC. And what we do there is we have the kids turn their Office implementations into touchscreen mode and the buttons all just get a little bit bigger. And hmm. it, it works fine. You know, it's, it's really interesting just to see how that works. Um, and, and they find it perfectly usable. So yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a philosophical one, isn't it? You know, yes. I think yes. if we're talking about Apple breaking boundaries of what the, it means to be an iPad, then this is a big boundary to break. It, it really is. Um, but there's, n- there's no inherent reason why it can't be broken. I just think that... If you're if you're going to have external displays, that actually implies that you have to break the cursor thing as well, mm-hmm. and you have to end up having a trackpad support. Yeah, um, for that. Yeah, yeah, and and on the same line, I think um, the more that Apple wants to push the iPad Pro as a as a real computer, as a real alternative to the Mac and to Chromebooks, I think they need to do more when it comes to external keyboard integration. Uh, I think a great mm-hmm. example. Of, of this is the um, things on iOS, the task manager for iOS. Yes. With version 3.6, they added um, this feature that is not just keyboard shortcuts. It's more like keyboard control in that you can fully navigate the app. You mm-hmm. can select elements. You can make selections. You can modify items. You can uh, you can select and deselect and do batch um, modifications, batch selections entirely using the keyboard and a combination of the error keys and the return key and keyboard modifiers. And I think that that's a really interesting idea of you can select items, you can scroll 
you can make selections you can you can uh, open the detail view of a task and modify yep. then exit again that is something that i would love apple to implement at a system level so the idea of i don't need what if i'm using a smart keyboard I could use a trackpad or I could just fully navigate iOS with a keyboard. Uh, I could select icons and open apps on the home screen, which is a whole other topic that I want to talk about. But the idea of yeah. doing more than just uh, a couple dozen keyboard shortcuts, basically. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the home screen uh, because for it's it's probably been one of the most requested um, changes by uh, on on tech blogs on concept videos <laughs> that I see um, the idea of going beyond just a grid of icons. There's a rumor that's saying that in I again iOS 13 2019 next year Apple will fully redesign the home screen and do something different. Um, I don't know if Apple wants to go the Android route and sort of do widgets on the home screen and a bunch of more information uh, sort of mm -hmm. tiles alongside icons, which I would personally like because I would like to have to fully control my home screen and, and pin a widget. Uh, yeah. you know, th that is w the, when I when I tried Android for a few weeks uh, a couple of years ago. That was one of my favorite features. I could fully customize the environment that I see when I unlock my phone. Um, yeah. I could see a scenario where for example shortcuts become part of of the home screen where siri uh -huh. can put proactive information on the home screen for example mm -hmm. so yeah yeah i, I think, think that yeah go ahead. um i think that w with ios 11 um ios 11 privileged the dock so much that i found that the home screen became much less useful on the ipad and really everything that was important to you had to go into the dock whether in a folder or something like that. So what I used to call the junk drawer folder uh, at the end of the dock to get all the things you might want for multitasking in there. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely scope for doing something a little bit more Android-like perhaps on the home screen, make it more useful. Maybe you could even imagine like files becomes the home screen. You know, I mean, what, that's what the Mac is, right? Isn't it? You know, it's the file manager is the home screen in some sense on the Mac. So hmm, maybe we're just sort of slowly reinventing the Mac back onto the iPad. Hmm. It's a scary thought of having a desktop finder on as the home screen of an iPad. Uh, but it, it would be weird, no doubt. But we, we've seen weird before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this final topic that I that I want to talk about with you. Um, mm. Breaking up iOS. Uh, w yeah. What do you mean by by breaking up iOS? Well, I mean, you, you know how, how it goes with iOS updates, Federico. We talked about it at the top of the show where every year Apple brings everybody together at WWDC and they, they tell us what iOS is going to be like for the next year. And then they do it again next summer. And they yeah. do it again the summer after that. And there's always a sense of trepidation there, not, not because we worry that it's going to be bad necessarily, but because we really hope that our, our favorite features made the cut. Because if they don't make the cut then then you're at least the whole year until it gets until it comes around for consideration again. And as we've talked about with iPad, two years probably. So when we get to iOS 13 next year and we're looking at WWDC 2019 and we're hoping for some of this stuff and it doesn't get there, you're now talking about WWDC 2021 before it probably will come around again for consideration. So partly kind of from the experience of using this Android phone for a couple, a few weeks now, um, what I've noticed with that is that I'm getting 
you know, significant feature updates to things like the camera, the calendar application, the maps application, as and when they're ready. Stuff's just streaming in all the time here. And I'm getting, I, I got the, essentially what is the camera from the Pixel 3 back on my Pixel 2 and things like that. And what I wonder is maybe there's a way for Apple to do something a bit similar. So instead of having all these user apps bundled up in the operating system, maybe take notes and calendar and mail and Safari and reminders and maps and all these different apps that Apple delivers along with the operating system and put, make them more like shortcuts and put them yeah. in the app store or at least deliver updates through the app store. Maybe they're installed by default. That's fine. I don't mind which way it goes, but you know, allow those teams to update those apps outside of the OS release cycle. And I think that would go a long way to, well, it may not go a long way, I don't know, but it would at least give an opportunity to update those apps as and when they're ready rather than waiting for major OS releases and trying to get in the schedule for that as well. Yeah, yeah, I think Shortcuts is a really great example. I mean, uh, if Apple can replicate what the Shortcuts team is doing with, uh, you know, they have a test flight, for example, beta testing group going on where people can sign up and preview new features and it's, you know, they're releasing new versions every week and there's this major update yeah. already, version 2.1 uh, that is, I suppose, coming out soon on the App Store. Uh, so the idea of the app itself is changing throughout the course of the year, I would definitely like to see, for example, mail and reminders have this kind of approach. Yeah. I suppose that one argument that people often uh, bring forward in this discussion is, well, but the Apple app is also the framework. So, for example, reminders is also an API for developers. Um, I think it can be done, yeah. though, that the, the, the user-facing client, so the reminders app, it could get new features, it could get fixes and new designs without breaking the API. Yeah, that's a slight technical misunderstanding, I think, on many people's part, that the app itself is not actually the same thing as the framework. Exactly, right? yes. There, there, there's a framework, and there's an Apple app that uses that framework, but the two could be decoupled in such a way that the app could get just user-facing features, not new APIs, right? That's a different matter. Like you, Developers need API levels to be pretty stable so that they can say iOS 11 or better, iOS 12 or better, or whatever um, version of the API their app needs. But whatever API version exists on the user's device should not necessarily have to be the same as the app version, right? Yeah. So um, you could have mail getting new features, but the mail core stays the same. Or, you know... Um, the calendar app gets better, but the yes. calendar framework is stable for developers between OS releases. So those two things could be separated. That's a, that's not a technical impossibility at all. Because um, um, obviously that's what happens with third-party apps, right? They use these frameworks, but their apps get better all the time as well. So maybe Apple could do a bit more of that. So as one yeah. final... Um comment on this uh, first episode of this mini-series of the iPad in the future. I wanted to reiterate how my sort of my guiding principle for the next few years is I want to see Apple bringing more consistent, not consistency maybe is not the right word, but showing that all, some, at least some of the powerful features that people need to use a Mac for these days, mm -hmm. they can also be done on the iPad. Uh, because the same company that makes the same apps is still treating the, the Mac as a, as a privileged 
platform in a way uh, and yes. saying if you want to do these serious things you need to buy a Mac and while I understand Craig Federighi actually said that on stage yes but <laughs> he, said, he said I can do my iPad or when I want to get work done I go back to my Mac <laughs> exactly and and I want to see uh, I want to see uh, uh, an evolution of the idea that the iPad Pro can be a computer replacement because you also have the Apple CEO saying that the iPad Pro is a computer replacement. And mm-hmm. I and I want to see a, a place where you can either use a Mac if you if you you know if you need to do complex 3D graphics or audio editing and you need a 27-inch display and you need to mm-hmm. open 25 different tabs in Safari. I totally understand why some people use a Mac. But also certain limitations on the iPad they just feel arbitrary like the yeah. the differences between the finder and files or mail mail on the Mac and mail on iOS so over the next few years I want to see a new design I want to see a new home screen I want to see all these fancy new features but also I want to see a message that says we make software for the Mac and the iPad and it's mostly the same it just adapts yes. Yes. to the context and to the device that yep. you're using because if you think about it, Federico, right, the, the same app that Apple delivers, like let's take Xcode, for example, right? Xcode can run on a, a, an iMac Pro and it can run on a 12-inch MacBook. Yes. Right? And the difference between those two things is not as great as the difference between that high-end iMac and my 12.9-inch iPad. Exactly. <laughs> like the MacBook is actually further down the line. Yes. And Apple software can adapt from that huge, powerful machine down to that puny little laptop. But somehow it skips the iPad in the middle. And, and I think that there, there's something in there, like, is, is this all one platform or is there two things going at different angles here or something like that? You you said it as well as I can certainly put it, but there's no reason why, there's no reason why that software can't run on powerful iOS devices, which are getting more powerful all the time. You know, you look at some of the performance specs for the new iPhones, for example, I mean, my goodness, those things are are embarrassing some laptops quite handily. So you're right. I think, is is there one Apple platform or are there two, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a key question that I think we're looking not just for the features, but we're also looking for the sort of intent behind them as well. Yeah. Uh, any last comments from you in regards to software? Yeah, I just think, Federico, that one of the things is uh, pace of innovation, right? Um, and the, the, I may be talking out of turn here. I, I don't know the internal details of how Apple develops software, but it seems to me, you know, from everything we know about Apple, that everybody's together in California, right? And the thing about that is that that means that Apple is limiting themselves to only developers who want to move to California and work for Apple. Uh, whereas lots of other tech companies have development sites all around the world, you know, places in Australia and Britain and Germany and all over the world. And I wonder if there's something happening here where if you think about a 24-hour period, right, other companies can get development work done all around the clock because they've got police people and anywhere the sun is up, somebody's developing Microsoft software, right? Or anywhere the sun is up, there's a Google employee working on something. But in Apple, you know, they're working in the workday in California and then they're all asleep, right? <laughs> um, and I wonder if there's maybe like, Apple has to start to globalize their development a little bit more just to kind of keep pace with these other companies because I feel like the features that I see coming from Google, even in things like mail and calendar, 
right? I mean, Google are, are powering away on new features for Gmail, new features for their calendar application, and we're sort of sitting here going, well, we can't actually remember the last time Apple put a feature in Mail, you know? I mean, it was like iOS 8 or something like that. Probably. When got file attachments, you know? Um, and I'm sort of thinking, I think they need to move faster on that. Yeah, I think it's, um, especially when you look at the, at the pace of innovation of certain system apps from Apple, it's pretty clear that... Um, I don't know if it's a problem of needing more resources, needing more people, needing more time, but I don't know if Apple can make this work with their sort of the, with their culture of secrecy. You know, we're also talking about the company that built itself, you know, a little palace <laughs> in California yeah. to hold all of their engineers and all of their secrets. But I think the idea of being more international and having teams spread across multiple continents and multiple countries, um, I think it could definitely be a potential solution for the problem of keeping up a keeping up a more a faster pace of changes and innovation and and fixes and improvements across all of their product lines, and especially when it comes yeah. to software, the idea of getting these monolithic updates uh, and that's pretty much it for the entire year. I would like I would like to see Apple being more uh, open to the to the idea of breaking up iOS across you know multiple apps with multiple teams across the world. They get faster updates, uh, faster release cycle, and we don't have to wait. Uh, you know we don't have to wait until June to and until September for most people to get all of these new features in iOS. Yeah, here's hoping we'll see what happens over yeah. the next year or so. Okay, well, this has been Canvas episode 73, the future of iPad software. I think we'll be talking most, most likely next time talking about hardware. There will be an Apple event in between times and we'll see what comes out then. I hope so. I hope that we can talk about hardware. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, so people can get the show notes for this episode at relay.fm slash canvas slash 73. You can connect with the show on Twitter at underscore canvas FM. Federico is Vitici. I'm Fraser Spears on Twitter, and we'll be back with you next show.